Thanks for joining us today. You're not here by accident. I believe that God is going to impart a message of hope to you today. And at Summit Christian Center, well, that's what we're all about, bringing messages of hope to people here and around the world. You can play a part in this by simply going online to summitsa.com. That's summitsa.com and select giving. Your giving enables us to keep the messages going forward. Thanks for joining us today and may God richly bless you. Well, we begin a brand new series this week called Little Bitty Words with Big Impact. Small words with big impact. Anybody been married knows you didn't have to say much to have a big reaction. Anybody but me ever done that? Well, of course we have. Now we're going to start with this little word, which is the most powerful word of all, and it's no. It is a boundary word. You only have two boundary words, yes and no. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He never said maybe, yes or no. If you tell me you show up, it's yes. Not if it doesn't rain, yes. And if it's no, it's no now and forever. If a girl tells you no, boys, it's no. It ain't maybe. It may be later I'll change. It's no. Learn these important words. So today, we're going to take a look at this incredible, important word. It can liberate you. It can free you. It can help you to set boundaries around your life. You live by design or you live by default. I don't want to... In other words, are you where you are because of design or did you just wash up on the beach? Well, that's what happens to a lot of people. God wants us to live by design. Now, there was a time in your life, everybody in this room, everybody watching my live stream, when you loved this word. There was a time when you were about two years old and you said this word recreationally, joyfully, and gleefully. Clean your room. No. Eat your peas. No. Share your toys. No. Then over time you learn that people like you better if you say yes than if you say no. We don't like it when people say no and they don't like it when we do. So we learn over time to say yes in ways that create enormous problems for all of us. We say yes to bosses, yes to schedules, yes to meetings, yes to obligations, yes to burdens, and yes to stuff that we're going to buy we don't really need, and yes to people we barely know and don't even like. Then eventually our life is crammed full. Yeah, they're decent, respectable, exhausting, fatiguing, resent-filled, godless little lives. Yeah, that's life. So we need to learn to say this word, no. Now there's an author, Shauna Nequist, and she writes about this. She says, quote, so if you're like me and you've said too many yeses and found out that all that hopeful, exciting, wide open intentional has actually left you scraped, raw, and empty, the word that can change everything is no. I know, I know, she says, I don't like it either. Yes is fun. Yes, it's got fizz and sparkle in it. It's printed on tote bags, but no. What if you saw somebody wearing a sweatshirt and it just said no? Well, I don't want to sit next to that bundle of fun, she writes. But no became the scaffold, she said, I wielded 
as I remade my life. So God gives us a scaffold to remake our life, to make space for God, because God generally won't force his way into your life. God generally won't honk the horn. He's just there. The Bible, among other things, is a book filled with amazing nose, wonderful nose, glorious nose. There's a man named Joseph. He's got a lot of reasons, a lot of self-pity to think because of what's happened to him, being sold by his brothers into slavery, that he deserved to have a little pleasure with a desperate housewife of Egypt, Potiphar's wife. And she's hitting on him and hitting on him and hitting on him. So he's invited into this relationship he knew would mess him up, but he knows his identity, and he knows his mission, and he says no. There's three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're living now as slaves in a foreign land. Their lives turned out really bad, and there's a lot of disappointment. They're invited to worship an idol, and by the way, we're all invited to worship idols. They know their identity. They know their mission. And they stand up to the king and say, no, we won't bow. One of the great stories involves a leader named Nehemiah. And he's in Jerusalem trying to help rebuild this great city. And I'll give you a little clue this morning. If you're trying to do anything good for God, it doesn't matter how big. It could be just being a parent. It could be just being a volunteer. It doesn't have to look big. But if you're trying to do anything for God, there will be forces that try to distract you pull you away from what God wants you to be and what God wants you to do. That's for all of us. Nothing happens much till you decide you're going to make a commitment to God and all hell goes online. I mean, everything goes wrong. With Nehemiah, it's people who ask him to come down off the wall. They want to interrupt him. Now, most people would have said, well, yeah, sure, okay. But this is what Nehemiah says. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should I stop work while I leave and go down to you? Nehemiah says, four times they sent me the same message. Each time, I gave them the same answer. No, 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 no. So here's the principle that's involved. If you're clear on your identity and clear on your mission, you'll get clear always on when to say no. It's not even hard, not when you know who you are and you know your mission. But you got to know who you are, and you got to know what you're called to do. In 2016, hundreds of thousands of people went on Twitter and revealed what they were giving up for Lent. Anybody want to guess what the number one object people gave up for Lent was? Chocolate. Suffering for Jesus. Second was alcohol. And third, interestingly enough, was tweeting. People were giving up tweeting for Lent. That's a huge sacrifice. It's kind of ironic they're tweeting they had given up tweeting, which seems kind of to defeat the purpose, doesn't it? So people will sometimes get this idea that God is into deprivation, and he just loves it when people deprive themselves. They don't know why, but they miss why no is the scaffold to remake and rebuild your life. And the problem with life is it's just so crammed full of schedules and burdens and obligations and busyness and hurry and resentment. There's no space for God except Christmas and Easter. No space just to be alive. 
So no is a wonderful gift. The reason to say no to a lesser good is so you can say yes to a greater good. That's why we love the word yes, and we'll look at yes next week. We have to really start, though, by emptying ourselves out and kind of getting free from this crammed life. The good news is there's a man who lived out on earth who mastered the art of no. He said the most powerful and creative no's the world has ever heard. His name was Jesus. His ministry, interestingly enough, doesn't start out with a great yes. It starts out with three great no's. And I want us to look at the three temptations of Jesus, which are exactly the same for us, and then Jesus' resounding no. So here we go. Jesus has just been baptized by John. He heard his identity confirmed by the Father in heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. He knows who he is. And then it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So he quotes the Bible all through the story. Now there's a real important context to that phrase, Man shall not live by bread alone. That's taken from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Moses, with Israel at the end of his life, is reviewing what God had done for him. And he says to the Israelites, and I quote, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, in order to teach you man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Israel, in slavery, had been taught in Egypt, man does live by bread alone. Israel was coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery. And when they were in Egypt, their job was to build great storehouses to store grain for bread. So they were taught in Egypt, the type of the world, you cannot trust there's going to be enough. You have to have more and more and more. They were taught in Egypt, it's okay to enslave people, to oppress human beings, to cause them to live in miserable conditions so people who have power can have more. God leads them into the wilderness to teach them a spiritual and an economic lesson that would really go deep. No, he says, I'll provide for you. I want you to learn to trust me. So here's temptation number one you're going to face. Jesus faced. You are what you have. You are what you have. The world will try to convince you, you are what you have. You should live by bread alone. Oh, maybe I should tell you, when the Bible talks about bread, it's not talking about the stuff we make toast out of. Bread was a symbol for life. It's the acquisition of material goods. You define yourself by the stuff you have. You should never have an appetite that goes unsatisfied. You can build your identity on just having nice stuff, a nice house, nice car, nice job, lots of money, nice clothes. And every one of us in this room will hear and has heard that voice. Every stinking one of us has heard it. You've heard it. I've heard it. I heard a lady tell this story about herself. She said early in her marriage, she didn't have a lot of money, and her temptation was to spend too much money on really nice clothes. 
her husband was a CPA and paid the bills, that created a problem. They had a conversation, and the husband said, Kathy, sweetheart, this is a temptation. You've got to learn to say no to it. She agreed, but the next month he's paying the bills, and he noticed she bought another way too expensive dress. So they had a little come-to-Jesus meeting, and he said to her, Kathy, I thought we agreed you were going you're gonna to do this. You know, you weren't going to do this anymore. She said, I know, I know. But I was at the store. I tried a dress on. I looked in the mirror in the fitting room. I heard this little voice that said, wow, that looks fabulous on you. You should buy it. And the husband said, Kathy, I thought we agreed together. You were going to say, get behind me, Satan. She said, I did. And he did. And he said, it looks pretty good from back here, too. So you're going to hear that little voice, whatever that item is, whatever bread alone looks like for you. A great theologian, Marusilov Wolf, I can't even say it, writes, quote, when we live by bread alone, there's never enough bread, not enough even when we make so much of it, some of it rots away. When we live by bread alone, we always want more and more and better bread. We are never satisfied. You can't even buy a flipping iPhone without them telling you the next is the greatest. The next makes your camera suck. The next has facial recognition. The next has this. And it's like, well, I got a piece of trash. I paid $1,000 for it, but it sucks. And, and so these people in Madison Avenue and Los Angeles, they spend hours and hours telling you, you got to have this, dry this, wear this, inhale this, wash with this, rinse with this, drink this, smoke this, inhale this, and then it's never enough. Then you got to have this and this and this. You buy a new car and drive off the parking lot, it's now $3,000 depreciated, and they're already announcing what the new car will have and how yours is a piece of trash. It really is. Here are the best words I ever heard. It's paid for. <laughs> I don't care what year it is. It runs. It's paid for. So the world will say you are what you have. If you don't have much, then you must not be much. And boy, that presses on people. See, that's the world we live in. You are what you have. So I've got to get in that zip code. I've got to be in a gated community. I can't live in this zip code. I can't be here. This house is too small. It doesn't look as nice. I don't want people to come over here for a connect group. Our house isn't in the right place. It's not nice enough. Listen, if I come to your house, I ain't coming for your stinking house. I'm coming for you. I like you. I'm coming for you. I don't care if it's a Kmart paper plate. If you're going to somebody's house simply because it's 10,000 square feet and it's it uh, costs a million, two million dollars, then you got the wrong motive to begin with, right? So I love people for who they are, not what they have. That you may be rich, but if I don't like you, I still don't like you. I'm not going to suck up to you. And if you're broker than the Ten Commandments and I love you and like you, I just love you and like you. There's no rhyme or reason about it. It's not based on, you, on what you have or don't have. I mean, we started this church 32 years ago or something, whatever it was, I can't even remember. I just remember my body was nicer then. I just remember that. <laughs> well, some of you too take 30 years off that chassis, and we all look a little better, wouldn't we? And I remember when we started, it was so bad, it looked like an Exxon oil slick in the parking lot. I said, have we got anybody that comes to this church that has a car that doesn't leak oil? It was bad. 
was just hoping everybody had a job. Somebody had a job. We started off poor. We didn't have anything. I hear people say when they see the building, I've heard comments, oh, do you go to that rich church? And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what? They have no, there's no rich church. This church is 78% supported by average, hardworking, blue-collar people. That's the majority of this church. It is not supported by rich people. Rich people rarely give money. Rarely. And if they do, they tip just to salve their greed. So it makes them feel better about not being really generous. Occasionally, some people are. But in the, in the, as the rule, according to the Bible, generally, not so. Not so. I used to take $60 million ball players out for lunch, and not one of them ever offered to pay for lunch. I had to pay for it all the time. I thought, interesting. Your mama ought to slap you. Your mama, your mama ought to teach you generosity. To whom much is given, much is required. You know, that's simple. So if you make it big, you be even better generous. But start where you are with the little that you have. So you're not what you have. We hear that voice every day, all the time, and it can suck you into a vortex. So that's the first temptation. And here's the practice to, to stand against it. Do without some stuff. Some of you have heard this word. It's an old Bible word. It means to fast. Fast means I temporarily refrain from consuming what I ordinarily consume in order to find out what happens to my life when I'm not gratifying myself with that stuff on a regular basis. And it may shock you to see the power it has on you. When you stop it, it's kind of like, I didn't know I was addicted. It's a fact. I don't know how dependent I am on it or what it does in me until I close myself off from it for a little while. You can fast with food. Now, a couple of things about that. Uh, fasting, from a Bible perspective, is not how to make God, to kind of manipulate God to give you what you want. No, no, no. Uh, some people think it's like, I'm going to go on a hunger strike, God, because I want that really bad. And I'm really going to hurt myself because I really, really, really want it badly, badly. Please, please give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. It's like, that's not the God you serve. That's not how he behaves. That's not his attitude. Uh, and then so, I really want it, Lord, but I'm afraid you won't take me seriously, so I'm going to hurt myself. God is not that kind of a God. Fasting is also not a diet. There is no Bible, how to look good naked fast in the Bible. I'm sorry, it is not. Dieting may be a good thing, but fasting is not about trying to get your body to look better. When I fast, I'm dealing with my life as a man that has appetites. And they're not all good ones. So when you, when you came into this world, some of you have little babies, all you were is a bundle of appetites. Hold me, rock me, pet me, feed me, change me. Appetite, need, 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 want, want, want. That's all you were, right? That's why kids love this character from Sesame Street. The cookie monster. And what's Cookie Monster's philosophy of life? See cookie, want cookie, eat cookie. <laughs> so they're smart people in advertising, staying up really late at night, trying to convince me that I am nothing more than a cookie monster, but I just have a wider variety and more expensive Oreos and Chips Ahoy and clothes and cars and houses. And the philosophy of this culture is the world is a machine, 
You're a bundle of appetites. Just try to satisfy all of them and don't hurt anybody else. That's life. And old Jesus says, no, that is not true. You don't have to be captive of your appetites. You are not made to gratify all your appetites. And a life with some ungratified appetites is not a tragedy if it has meaning and goodness and love attached to it. When I fast, I learn, I teach my body, it's possible to have an unsatisfied appetite and survive. In fact, <coughs> sometimes thrive. What an amazing thing. You know, so you could, you know where the word breakfast comes from? To break the fast. Break fast. Interesting, isn't it? <coughs> so if you didn't learn anything today, you learned where breakfast came from. So then I find out a little bit more about what role food plays in me. Go diet for 24, I mean diet, fast for 24 hours. Just go one day without food. Every sign you see has got food on it. Everything on the radio will be about a commercial about food. All of a sudden, one of the five senses of smell. You can smell food five blocks away. What, you can smell it in the mall. Everything is about food. You never think about food when you're eating, but when you deny yourself, everything in your body goes wacko. Nuts. Just goes crazy. I've done that. I know. I was fasting one day in July 30 years ago, and our girls were real little, and Cindy was cooking chili dogs and french fries with salt. Oh, God, it was so good. And it's hot chili. And I was going to do my 24-hour fast. I'd made it to about supper. It was about 98 degrees. I walk in the door. I smell the, the aroma of chili. I smell hot dogs and mustard and ketchup and onions and relish and French fries. And Cindy's putting salt on them. And the girls are at the table. And Cindy says, honey, do you want a chili dog? I said, yes. <laughs> yes, the man of God went down for a chili dog. I did. I did. Yeah, the shame of it. So I'm confessing. When you don't think it has power over you, you're crazy. So you say, well, somebody's addicted to cocaine, you're addicted to food. Yeah. You've got to deny yourself, and it's not hurtful, it's not harmful. You find out you're not Superman, you're not in control of your life, not really. And what a slender thread your, your life hangs by. There are appetites dealing with sexual appetites. You might fast from shopping. There are people who spend too much money and cannot stop shopping. You need to learn, how can I learn to thrive when I'm not gratifying my, my appetite to buy more stuff? Maybe it's an electronic fast. There are people working really hard to find out more ways to get you attached to a device. There was a group of people sitting around a table one time at Apple, and they probably said, I got an idea. When people get a text, let's attach a bell to it, a ding, a buzz. You ever, you ever heard or felt that little buzz, a ring? Now, there's a reason behind that, because now every time a text comes, you're thinking, uh-oh, I might be missing something important. I might be in trouble. I better stop whatever I'm doing with this person, and I better check on it. And the result is people check their smartphones 150 times a day. I mean, we see it all the time, people walking through the world. Cindy and I went into a nice restaurant three weeks ago, and I saw a beautiful family, and they all had their heads bowed, and I thought, my God, look at that nice Christian family. No, they were all on their phone. They were all, they were, <coughs> they were all on their phone. We're addicted to this stuff. What would our life be like if I trained myself to turn my body, my mind, and my heart towards God 150 times a day? 
just to think about it. The temptation is to believe you are what you have. The practice, do without. Second temptation. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, I'll give you all of their authority, all this splendor. If you'll worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus said, it is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the idea of this temptation is that Jesus, you could have the most impressive resume anybody in this world ever had. You have such amazing power. You could use those powers to do what no one else has ever done. And here's the temptation. You are what you do. You are what you do. Worship your work. Sacrifice your life, your soul, your family on the altar of achievement. The first temptation, you are what you have. Second temptation, you are what you do. And if you don't do much, why, you must not be much. And the practice here, do less. Doing without is called fasting. Doing less is called Sabbath. Just regularly have a period of time you don't work. You're not creating value. You're not being important. You're not saving the world. You're just saying no. You get to say no to the insanity of a nonstop frenzied world around you. And it's not wrong. To, hey, did I interrupt you? No. What are you doing? Nothing. Why are you talking to me? Yeah. The most famous cartoon in the history of the New Yorker magazine is the one you see now. A businessman is speaking on the phone. No, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? <laughs> Just say no. It's really interesting when Jesus at the beginning of his ministry goes into the wilderness led, led by the Spirit. For 40 days, he does not give a talk. He doesn't draw a crowd. He doesn't recruit a team. He doesn't train a disciple. He doesn't write a book. He doesn't heal a disease. He does nothing because nothing is really important to do for people who are doing a lot for people who are tempted to think you are what you do. So maybe the practice for you is a Sabbath. Have a day of the week. You don't do anything significant. You don't do anything important. You just enjoy life. You just be. That was the pattern set by Jesus anyway. If you want to follow him, you've got to stay behind him. He goes off to the wilderness for 40 days, does nothing. He goes off when it's dark to a quiet place, he does nothing. He goes off to a mountaintop where it's beautiful, he does nothing. He goes into a garden when life is really difficult and the pressure is great, and he does nothing. So maybe your practice is a Sabbath. One last temptation. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. I hope you know the devil can quote Scripture, good or better than you, absolutely word for word. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up with their hands so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus for a more opportune time. So this temptation is, you know, Jesus, you could do something so spectacular, everybody would go, wow. You could be the golden boy. You could make everybody applaud you. Temptation number three, you are what people think you are. You are what people think of you. That's the voice of our world. You are what you have. You are what you do. 
You are what people think you are. Be spectacular. Please people. Get people to approve you. Because if they disapprove of you, oh my, how awful that would be. How terrible somebody might not think as highly of me as they ought to think of me. And that becomes slavery. That becomes an addiction. You become codependent. Now you think about Jesus. Who in his life did Jesus not disappoint? It's an amazing thing when you read the Bible. The crowd said to him, we want you to be our king because, man, you could defeat all of our enemies. Jesus said, nope. He disappointed them. The religious leader, the Pharisee said, you're not living up to our standards of righteousness. You're hanging out with the wrong people. Stop doing that. No, he disappointed them. His mother and brothers came and said, you're acting crazy. You need to come home with us and stop this insanity. He said, no. He disappointed him. Herod said to him, do a miraculous sign so I can be wowed. But he disappointed Herod. James and John and their mother said, let my two boys sit on your left hand and right hand. He disappointed her. He disappointed everybody in his life except his father. It's okay to disappoint some people. It is. And the practice around this one do without some human approval. Let somebody be disappointed in you and be okay with that. Say no to something you need to say a no to that you should say no to. And when somebody's not happy about it, suck it up. Be okay with it. That's all right. Don't try to change their mind. Don't try to make sure your reputation is built up in them. Because you're not what you have, you're not what you do, and you and I are not who people think we are. Here's our identity. We are the children of the Most High God. Jesus had to say no his whole life. And it wasn't just at the beginning. Over and over, right up to the very end when he's hanging on a cross, the crowd is crying out, you saved others, save yourself. Come down off that cross. But thank God he said no. And that no became God's yes to the whole human race. The cross, which looked like the triumph of no, actually becomes God's yes of forgiveness, grace, eternal life, and love to the human race. Next week, we'll look at the greatest statement in the Bible about God's yes and your yes to God. You don't want to miss that one. This week, though, we're going to have to learn to say no. The world's going to try to make it really hard. There's going to be pressure on you. Do too much. Buy too much. Commit to too much. Say yes to too much. So as we close, could we all with great energy, great vigor, pretend you're two years old with attitude, and I'm going to count three, and I want everybody to shout like you're two years old. No. You ready? One, two, three. No! Wow, that was amazing. Whoa, that's better than I thought. Okay, let's pray. We need to pray now. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we bring to you our lives, and we acknowledge we get them so crammed up, so messed up, how desperately we need you. We get burdened, we get overcommitted, we get tired, and we don't have any space for you. Please forgive us. We can waste time, need time, and lose time. God, would you give everybody in this room the courage to say no to whatever appetite, 
whatever decision would crowd out your presence in their lives. Help us, God, make space. Help us walk together with our friend Jesus in this season to a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb. Teach us the power of the divine no in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.